Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 271. This program is dedicated in honor of the 50th birthday of Rabbi Rachmiel Jacobson, a supporter of ours, a supporter of My Life, Chassidah Supplied, a big balzdoke in many different areas, and also a first cousin of mine. We share our fathers were brothers. So may I have a 50th birthday, Shnas Hatzlocha, Mikhail Al-Choyel, Begashmis, and Beruchnius, in all possible ways. 50th birthday, I always mention, of course, the story with the Rebbe. When the Rebbe turned 50, he said the Maimon in Tavshin Yud Beis, he said the Maimon in the capital Nun Aleph, Adnai Sfosei Tiftach. When Abnissen Nemnov turned 50, the Rebbe gave over that he should chazer over that Maimon. So that Maimon has particular significance when it comes to this birthday. Of course, Chamishim, Chamishim Le'etzah, and all the interpretations of it. Okay. We're in the beginning of the nine days, literally on Gimel Av. Today is Gimel Av, and we're going into, which is of course the birthday of Rabbi Rachmiel. And uh, we're going toward the saddest day of the year. And when Mashiach comes, then it'll be the most celebrated day of the year, Tisha B'Av. This coming Shabbos. Because it's Shabbos, it's Nitche, and the fast will be pushed off if Mashiach doesn't come till Sunday, which we'll talk about next week, Sunday. So we're in a very significant period that has many, many lessons to us, and especially, as Chassidus explains, to look at always the positive and find even in the darkest moments, even in times of pain and times of sadness, to find the joy, to find the unity, to find the godliness within it all. And that, of course, is the message of this period in time. Now, of course, the three weeks began Shavasa Batamas. It intensifies the grieving in the morning in the nine days began on Friday. As I mentioned last week, in two days will be also Hey Menachemov, which is the yard site of the Arizal. A yard site, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya, is not a day of sadness alone, especially years later. It's a day when Peyal Yeshua is Bekeravar, it's all the Aveda and all the work of that particular tzaddik. On that day, gathers together elevates, and also Pearl Yeshua, it affects salvation, it's even the depths of this earth, even in the lowest levels. So it's interesting that this takes place right smack in the middle of the nine days, as the Yorzeit of Arnakein, and we spoke about Magdim Rafula Maka, that before the Maka, before you have the illness, before you have the affliction, and in this case, the affliction of the nine days, which is so much about Pirud, separation. First of all, the sinas chinam, the baseless hatred, which caused the destruction of the second temple. Secondly, the the the, the pirud that that causes throughout the entire seder shtalshes, the entire cosmic order, where the divine presence, which was in the Beis Hamikdash, in the holy temple, separates on a revealed level. And golas, by definition, is a displacement, a psychological, emotional, physical, spiritual displacement all indicating to separations. Comes Aaron and the Arizal, both focusing on the message of Ardus. To repair the breach, to repair the schism, what do we do? We add an increase in things of unity. So you find by the Arizal a fascinating thing. I've spoken about this in previous years. It just constantly always amazes me. Throughout history, you find there are many, many great leaders Often those great leaders were leaders in their community, and sometimes they became known in the entire world. But it took time. 
because there were often different disagreements. Even the Rambam, for example, was controversial in his time. Some did not hold of everything he did. Till the Ramban, who came and wrote a snatzos and a defense, and, and that's when the and Rambam was then virtually accepted by everybody. But you find throughout history, even great leaders, there were different opinions. Come to Arizal, though he came on the scene only a year, a little more than a year and a half, the last years of his life, the last year and eight months of his life, came to Tzfas, he was embraced by all the great leaders of Tzfas, which was the greatest leaders of the Jewish community, the, we're talking about the Beis Yosef and the Ramak, Shlema Alkovitz, talking about the Alshech, I mean, the list goes on, Chaim Vital, of the greats that all embraced him, and he was embraced everywhere, even though there was one person who questioned, but then once he realized who that is, was, and they called him a Gon Eliki, a Isha Eliki, a divine human being, and usually it takes time for a person to emerge as that. Even in the recording to the laws of Mam and the Hilchas Mam and the Rambam, how does someone get accepted? With time, as people recognize his greatness. Remember, this was also a time before technology. People study, and, and once he's endorsed and embraced by everybody, but here, Sfardim and Ashkenazim, and today, Chsidim and Nanchsidim, of all walks of life, the Arizal, a unifying force, like the Rashbi was in his time. Why? Because the Arizal united both parts of Teda. Nigla the Teda, the body of Teda, and the spirits and the soul of Teda, the Shmosedar Aysen. So when you're in that type of level where you're not looking at, at, at studying or teaching a certain part of Teda, you, you create unity and harmony, that harmony spills over also into harmony among people. So who better is a tzaddik, as a mukubu, and especially that Izal who pioneered what would be called mitzvah legalizes hachachma, the time coming to reveal this chachma, this inner wisdom, until then, it was not a mitzvah. It actually was a, considered to be something that has to be kept undercover. Individuals and private, and it was very kept in, in, in very close circles. That began the process that the Baal Shem Tov, who would hear from Mashiach, would only accelerate with the spreading of the wellsprings to the outside, and then each generation after the subsequent to that, even more so and more so as a preparation to the Geula, and also to greater light to deal with the darkness. And it's Habahotalia, they're interconnected. So who better as a, as a Rebbe, as a Tzaddik, as a Nasi Ador, a uniter in Teda, a uniter in so many levels, revealing the inner Nisham of things, which of course is the key to unity. When we say the mitzvah, the question is how? So the Baal Shem Tov teaches by looking at the soul of a person as explained in Tanya chapter 32. So Arizal who taught about the soul and in a very dramatic and pioneering way, revolutionary way, you can even say, that elicited also revealing the soul in all of us, which creates a unity, which counters and is an antidote, and a, you could say, a preventive medicine, and an antidote to the period, to the separation and the disharmony and the fragmentation of this particular period in time. So that teaches us as well that we have to increase in these days, in even deeper love, and you do that by going even deeper into the soul of a person. Because you could say, you know what, I just don't like certain people. How can it be a mitzvah regulate? You could say there's a mitzvah to do good to someone, charity, even if you don't like them. But to say a mitzvah to love, to love? Has there, the Magad asked the question on loving God, how can you regulate an emotion? The answer is when you contemplate on the soul of an individual, you recognize the, the specialness that every human being has, every Jew has, 
And that, like he says, in Tanya, Mi Yadei Gedulosim Alosim, Av Echad Lekalonim, we're all children, we're all brothers and sisters, one father, and we all have a soul that's unique. And these souls connect. That's the Aveda, the work in this period in time. And that is our leads the way and guides us in that fashion. There are many other things that could be said about this, about Arizal. I remember Tov Shalamet Hay, the Rebbe then made the Siyum on the Amsechtis, and he spoke about Pole, um, and he spoke then about Ade Orav, Pole Yodim, Ade Orav, a person works Ade Orav, and he, the Rebbe gave all the different interpretations in Tov Shalamet Hay. And then he added that Rizal's interpretation, Adi Arav, and then gave the interpretation that Rebbe Adi Arav includes till the end of Golas, Arav going on the darkness of Golas, and explained that all the interpretations come together and unite. I spoke about this in previous episodes, which I'm going to cross-reference right now. Episode 76, 126, 172, and 221. Now this leads us also from Hayyav, we go into, of course, the days that we get closer to Tishabov. And this year, Tishabov is also Shabbos Chazain. So usually Shabbos Chazain is the Shabbos before Tishabov. But this year, it's on Tishabov, and the fast, as I mentioned, is pushed off till Sunday. What's Shabbos Chazain? Chazain Yeshayo, the, the vision of Aishai, where he talks about the destruction. But then concludes, the, the remedy as well, that Zion will be redeemed through Mishpat, through Sustera, Halach, and Mishnah. And Shaver, it's captives through Tzedakah, through charity, which are also uniting forces. Tehidah unites and Tzedakah unites. So Shabbos Chazem, we know the famous Pirush, every year the Rebbe would cite it in the name from Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, by Ditzvah, that Rabbi Hill Paracher cites. Now what? That Chazem is also refers to, in addition to the vision of Yeshaya, the vision that's shown to each individual. From afar is shown the Beis Amigdash Ashlishi, the third temple in order to evoke the gaguim, the yearning, to want to rebuild it by doing what we have to do to rebuild the Beis Amidish, the unity, the Torah mitzvahs, and so on. <clears throat> and um, he gives a marshal for it, a marshal of a father who, in love of his son, chose to weave for him a beautiful shirt. A shirt. And the child wore the shirt a few times, and then he accidentally made a mistake, and the shirt got torn. So then Hashem, God, the father went, and we, the king went, and wore the second shirt, even better and not more beautiful than the first one. And again, the same thing happened. So this time, God, the father, the king says, I won't, weave a sh- I won't give him the shirt, I'll weave even a more beautiful one. And I'll show it to him once a year from a distance. So he should want to appreciate it, and then when Mashiach comes, the Gula Amitiz Vashlemet, the Beis Amitiz Ashlishi, then I'll give it to him, and it'll be an eternal, Migdash Adne Ken Yedecha, Abayas Nitzche, an eternal, and the shirt will never again be torn or, or compromised in any way. And that's the example he gives. As the Rebbe, seemingly, it would be a better example to give from a building. Since the Beis Amitiz is a Moshul example, an analogy for, uh, for the temple, why a shirt? It should have been. He built a beautiful palace for his son, and he messed it up, let it get destroyed. Then he built even a better one. That Bayes uh, Sheni is even is even greater than Bayes Godel. both in years and in size and so on. It stood longer, 420 years, not just 410 years. 
would seem more appropriate to give the example of a building. And then, give it, so, so the Beis HaMikdash, every, why, why a garment? And the Rebbe explains, and Chassidus talks about makifim, that there's two types of makifim. There's a makif akarav and a makif arochik. Makif akarav means a makif that's closer to us, like a garment. A garment, even though it is a makif, it's not who you are, it's a garment you put on, but it's a garment that's tailored to the body of the person. So it's a makif akarav, it's called. A transcendent state, but a transcendent state that's commensurate and relates to the structure, the, 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 the human being in this case. Makif al-Rochik is compared to a bias. A bias is not as close as also a makif. You live inside the home, but from a home you can't always tell who's living in there. From a garment you can tell the size of the person. A healthy garment is fits tailored to him. So makif al is a transcendence that's even more distant. The reason of Levi gives the marshal of a garment because he wants to explain how the Beis HaMikdash relates to us. Not as a distant structure, but like a garment that relates to us and we can see it and shown on Shabbos Chazen. This is one of the explanations that Rebbe gives why the marshal is used, this example is used. Which of course tells us that this is that was seen, shown on Shabbos Chazen, even though we don't see it physically, and the Rebbe explains this in many different ways, but it's effects we can see if we allow ourselves. The effect is how it wake us, wakes up our gaguim, our yearning, to want to rebuild it. But it's something that we see like something that relates to us, not just a building, but actually like a garment that we can dresses us up. Shachanti b'seichem, that God rests among us as a garment is closer to our beings than a structure is. And that tells us that this, this period in time, though on one end, as I said, is the saddest time of the calendar, saddest period in time, it also has within it tremendous potential, tremendous um, potency, that when you allow ourselves, we can elicit even a deeper type of connection, a deeper unity, and a deeper connection also to the base of Medesha which is a direct product, outgrowth of our activities, our actions. So we can visualize it, and we can relate it and say, Chazen, the Chazen was, was shown this, and we, we learn to derive, we learn to allow it to imp, imp, motivate us to grow, that is what this period in time is about. So there are times in the year where we get giluyim, there's revelations that inspire us. Regular holidays. Not, no holidays regular, but each one in its own way. Then there's times in the year, it's through the distance, through the fact that we're shown something and we don't have it, and you feel that angst, you feel that lack. That lack, that void, that vacuum, is what elicits even a more intense wish and will and, and um, desire to connect. And that's a lesson to all of us in life, that when there's a setback or there's any type of situation that we would call challenging, that is like a nine days in our personal lives, it has the capacity to demoralize us. But what it should do is elicit from us and motivate us to dig deeper and find even greater fac- resources and strengths and skills to be able to bring even more light into, the, into our lives. So that's some lessons from this. And as I, I referred already to previous episodes, so here's a good opportunity. My Life Chassidus Applied is a service that Meaningful Life offers. You go to chassidusapplied.com and the full array of all the programs, 270 episodes the last six years are all there. You can, they're indexed, you can look for them by topic or by episode, they're also timestamped, so you can find exactly the place in the YouTube version on the desktop or laptop. 
and go exactly to the place that's linked straight to the place that you'd like to check out. And we've covered literally, literally thousands of topics by now. And these are all questions that are generated by you to, on, on our anonymous forum, where you can submit any question completely anonymously because there's no trace, it's a forum. If you'd like us to respond for some reason, if you'd like us to send you something, you have to give your email address there so we know how to communicate with you. Because sometimes people write to us and say, please respond, and we can't respond, we have no idea who you are, which is exactly the way it's meant to be. It also has many other resources of applying chassidus to our lives, including the different essays, powerful essays, literally, literally now thousands of people who've submitted essays over the last five years. In the different essay contests are all posted there, and we post them every week, the new essays of this past year's contest, this 2019 contest. Okay, good. Let us now move to some other topics and some follow-ups. So the next question is, is there life on other planets according to Torah? Okay. So I did address this two weeks ago when we spoke about the landing on the moon and the Rebbe's Sikha. So this Rebbe actually asked, so let me read the question and then the Rebbe's response. According to Chassidus, can there be reproductive light outside of planet Earth? And can there be beings with free will other than, free will other than humankind? And the answer is yes. There's a Sikha Dvarim, Shabbos Pasha Dvarim, this Shabbos Shabbos 50 years ago, Tavshin Chavtes, 1969, that summer, where the Rebbe spoke about it in connection to the events then of landing on the moon for the first time. And basically what the Rebbe said then regarding this topic, because it was with landing on the moon, of course, re, uh, re, re, brought up again this question, is there life on other planets? And the Rebbe basically cited that from a posik in uh, in Sheftim, uh, in Shiraz Dveda, in Kapitel Hay, so this was after the war with um, uh, Borok winning the war against Sisra, his enemy. So in uh, chapter Hay, chapter 5, uh, verse 20, Dveda, the Nevi'ah, the prophet, the sings, the stars in their course fought against Sisra. And then in verse 23, she continues, Aru meroiz ba'aru teshveha. In English, curse meroiz, said the angel of the Lord, curse bitterly its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of God against the mighty men. So what's meroiz? That's the question. So there are two opinions in the Talmud in Moed Cotton 16a. And Rashi cites it, I believe, on the Posik as well. One opinion is, that it's referring to a certain place in the world that, um, that the people live there, and that's what it's referring to, a city. And inhabitants, the inhabitants of the city, that did not come help. But a second opinion, which is much more de- a much more a definitive one, because since we're talking about... Um, the stars in their course fought against Sisra, the Kechavim, that Merez is a kechav, is a planet. A celestial body whose inhabitants did not come to help Borok. So based on this, Yeshveh, its inhabitants, inhabitants of another planet. Now the interesting thing is, the first opinion does not say there is no life on other planets. It just says in this context, you could touch Merez is a city in, in, in this world. So conceptually, even both opinions 
Even the first opinion does not negate the possibility. The second opinion clearly states that it means life on another planet. That's very clear. And as I said, it fits into the number rays, you know, sounds awfully similar to Mars. Not necessarily that's its meaning. I'm just pointing that out as an aside. The Rebbe went on to explain, however, that you have to say because of theological reasons that since Tater was given to this world because of this creation of life with free will, then you have to also give them directions what to do. And since Tater was given a Sinai, only one Tater was given to this world, you have to say if there is life, that life on other planets, like this with this, the Oromorais, like Morais, that it's not a life of free will, it's not life as we know it. Reproductive, why not? It doesn't say anywhere you can't have reproductive life. But here you clearly see that's possible according to everybody, and according to one opinion, actually is life on other planets. Okay. Um, fine. Now, everything has to do with Chassidus applied. What, what, why is it irrelevant to us that there's life on other planets? Not? First of all, it adds into the amazement of Magad Lumasecha, God's creation that he created such a vast solar system, including life. It also teaches us the value of our lives because at the end of the day, everything was created in order for us to elevate the world with our free will and through Teda to transform the world into Adira B'Tachtenim. So any life out there, just like this tremendous amount of life on this planet, and that also teaches us the value of our lives because we have the ability to elevate all of that and to refine it all and to direct it towards its purpose. Okay. Let us now go to the next question. Does Chol of Yisrael affect Aramuna? I understand that mitzvahs have underlying reasons and higher purposes. For example, I've heard, I've heard that the Rebbe says that keeping Chol of Yisrael has a greater effect on our has a great effect on our Amunah Hashem, faith in God. What is the source in the Torah for this, and what is the logical connection between eating Chol of Yisrael and having Amunah? So firstly, I spoke about this more at length at episodes 108, 110, and 112. So this is the halachas, is the Mishnah, and then there's the halachas of Shulchan Aruch about cholavakum, meaning cholav that is uh, not watched by a Jew, how it was milked and how it's taken care of and prepared because of the chashash, the concern that it might mix in other milk from other animals that are not kosher. And um, that is the technical reason. But everything has a deeper reason. And let's say there is milk mixed in. Why does that bother us? So this goes back to the laws of kosher itself. Why do we eat kosher? So you could say it's a chukah. That's what God said. These foods are permitted. These foods are not permitted. But we know that in addition to the fact that that's what God wants, everything has a reason. And that's why you find in the commentaries. In Parsha Shmini, you find in the, in the, in the different commentaries that Amban and the Rabbeinu Bachai and um, the, the Alshech, I believe, they all talk about the fact that animals that don't have the signs of a kosher animal are more predatory animals. Animals that chew their cud and have split hooves are generally domestic animals. And since you eat, you are what you eat, you assume what you consume, the effect of eating a certain animal has an effect on us. Even in general, even kosher food has an effect on us, affect our personality, on our moods, heavier foods, and so on. So therefore, as the Zayar says, that there are more sensitive souls in the world, like the heart, they have to be more careful of what you, 
what you uh, consume. So the regular world, the, Jew, the regular world, not the Jewish world, the non-Jewish world, that foods are not poisonous. They're not destructive in that sense. And because they're spirituality, they can, they're able to eat those foods. But for a Jewish person, compared the Jew to the heart, there you have to be more sensitive because the heart's more sensitive So what food it consumes. So Cholovakim would go into the same category. We're not now getting into whether it needs Hashgacha today, according to Rab Moshe, and so on and so forth. Bottom line is, the Aruch HaShulchan and many others have said that we're not looking for any loopholes here. There could be a loophole. We have a certain heter, but generally speaking, Cholovakim, is, the issue is not whether, whether it's just whether it's watched, is that there's something about a certain food being care, cared about that makes sure that it's most refined and therefore fitting spiritually for the person to consume. So therefore, based on all the sources that talk about what non-kosher food does, and this case, in this case, Chalvakim would be the possibility of something not kosher from another animal being mixed into the milk. So it has an effect on our personality, including the effect of anamuna. Now in Svarim, it speaks about it mostly in the Sifri Kabbalah. I didn't actually bring up a source. I'll look it up. I didn't look it up, an actual source. But in, in more in Kabbalah, it talks about and Chassidus, of course, talks about how foods have an effect on us, including Cholavakim has an effect in a negative way, because, as I said, when you're talking about what you consume, which becomes our flesh and our blood, you want to be most sensitive. So just like the example would be that you want to eat healthier foods, the same thing spiritually, there's some foods that are more conducive to adding and increasing a person's faith and a person's connection to the divine, and certain foods that create more disconnection and therefore lack can affect a person's faith. That's why you have stories. The Al-Tarebi even, there's a story where somebody came to him that they, that they, were, and they had a son, that a child that was dealing with not, was, was having doubts in, in faith, having questions about faith. So the Al-Tarebi said that he probably ate something from Chalavakum because that affects the faith. That's a source of a fetish from a story. Is there a source further beyond that in the books, in the, whether it's Kisferizal or other Kabbalah? That I have to look up. If anybody has any sources, please share them with me, and I'll share them on this program. Okay, next question. And again, I refer you to those episodes where I discuss this more at length. The next question is, is it appropriate to paint a mural of the Alter Rebbe on an alley wall? So I discussed this topic back in episodes 186, 188, and 193. But since the question came in again, let me read the question and then briefly respond, but I tell you where I spoke about it at length there. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. About a year ago, I wrote to you about a number of graffiti paintings of the Rebbe drawn on alley walls in Crown Heights, which was then spray-painted over by zealots. In that letter, I expressed my feelings that it's inappropriate to paint the image of the Rebbe on alley walls. You seem to agree with me. Unfortunately, history repeated itself a few weeks ago when another, I think, graffiti, graffiti artist painted the image of the Alter Rebbe on the alley wall on Kingston Avenue in Cranice. To, to say it's distasteful, I think, is an understatement. Rab Simon, you may wonder who I am to defend the honor of the Alter Rebbe. The truth is, I asked myself the same question. My reply is, every Chabad Chassid has the responsibility and obligation to defend the honor of the Alter Rebbe and all the Rabbeim. I'm not going to blame the artist because I'm assuming he's not Lubavitch and he had good intentions. However, the artist did not draw this in the middle of the night. It was by day, and I'm sure he got permission from the nearby store owner or property owner to paint on the building. 
Elabavitcher Chashid should know better and understand that this is not an appropriate place to paint the image of a Rebbe, especially when, in my opinion, the style of the drawing is not t- too honorable either. I would like to say to the artist, if he would be listening to your show, that he's, ob- that he's obviously a gifted artist. However, it has to be utilized in the right way. For example, such art can be used to spread the seven laws of Noah, the ten mitzvah campaigns. But drawings of the Rebbe on alley walls is totally inappropriate, in my opinion. Gewalt weigeschregen. Where are the Rabbonim? Vadakol Anash. Of course, this should be resolved with Darke Neim or Bidarke Shalom in a peaceful and calm and a, and a uh, peaceful way. Messiah and Betev, we conclude with good as today is referring to the date when the letter was written, it was a while ago. I would like to conclude with a blessing that all of Klayasol in Erzisol and the world over should be blessed only with revealed good, materially and spiritually, Mashiach now. Amen. Okay, so I did speak about it on the different sides of the story. I didn't come up with a definitive response, even though I do agree leaning toward against it, because knowing from how the Rebbe treated, said not to make caricatures, not to make cartoons and comic books of the Rabbeim, everything should be the original pictures as we have them, also was against making a Rebbe on a stamp because it could be discarded and it could be defaced. So I would tend to agree that, especially since I'm not 100% sure, why not, why take the risk and just not do it? So I would agree with that. To go and deface it and uh, spray paint it is, is, I don't know if that's a, a vandalism, is also not a solution. So I'm not going to say anything more on it because I did speak about it in 186, 188, excuse me, on 193. But I appreciate you bringing it up again. And may uh, join the fray and may everybody weigh in on this matter. As I said, I don't have a black and white source, but based on things I've seen and what I've heard, someone asked me, I would say, what's the need to do it for? No mitzvah to do it. So then stay away from something of this nature that, is it isur daraisa? I didn't say it's a prohibition, but it's a matter of respect and unnecessarily appropriate. Now, some may argue, well, isn't a way of publicizing so firstly, this is being done in Crown Heights. We're not talking about publicizing and putting up a picture of the Alter Rebbe somewhere which, which would have awakened people to tshuva, to Yiddishkeit. And even then, maybe a picture is better than a, than a, uh, than a uh, piece of art. But the idea is, as we do have art of the Rabbeim, so the question is where you post it. In most cases, art is placed on a wall, in a museum, in a, in a house, in a shul, in a Chabad house. Yeah, the question is more on an alley wall in the street, which at the end of the day, also the weather will affect it. So as I said, I would lean against it, but I'm not going to rule on this on black and white because I don't know if anyone can make such a ruling. So enough said on the topic. If anybody wants to weigh in, please share, and we'd love to hear your comments, and I'll address it. Okay, next question. Next question is... How can we explain the many wives of Yaakov Shlema and others? Yeah. This is a follow-up to episode 267 on polygamy. I listened to your answer with great interest and appreciated that episode. However, I still have so many questions. Since I was a young teenager, I struggled deeply with understanding how we say Elike Yaakov when he had four wives. I can get Rochel and Leah, but Bila and Zilpah as concubines? Quite honestly, the thought made me, makes me nauseous. As Jewish history goes on, we meet Dover HaMelech. He had so many wives, and then when he was older, he had a psula to warm him up. Then we move on to Shlema 3000. 
If we would hear of a modern day figure having 3,000 women, we would call him all sorts of names, and this is who Hashem chose to build the Beis HaMikdash. As a teenager, I asked every rabbi in Rebetzin I met to help me understand this. While yes, there can be individual answers to each situation, the sheer numbers and the fact that these are such major figures in Jewish history was still something I couldn't fathom. I eventually decided to try and put the concept to rest and accept that I understand, I understand so much Torah and so much about what we do in Yiddishkeit that it's okay not to understand it all. Fast forward some time, I am now Baruch Hashem married, a shlucha and a mother. These questions have now come up in my life as I teach these stories to my students. Chazer chumish with my son and watch my daughter say tilim. I've searched for an answer yet can't seem to find any. I wonder what I will say to my children when they ask me. With all the recent scandals going on in the world, these topics are currently a hot button issue. Someone in my community asked me what the difference was between Jeffrey Epstein, Trump, Clinton, and all the other men who used their power to abuse and manipulate women, and the men in Jewish history. I gave the same wishy-washy answers I heard my whole life, but I don't feel answered myself. I would truly love your input. Okay. So, as you know, I don't shy away from any questions, and though this question is not a simple one, I will say the following. I think it's important instead of trying to find cute or, um, or I don't say the word cute, but trying to find an answer for each particular episode and uh, sometimes forced answers, uh, halachic loopholes and so on and so forth, I think it's important to let's go take the approach, a different approach completely. What is Teda and who are all these individuals? Why do we give them such sacred roles and divine uh, mission that they all were on. And then when you find these things, of course, it's very quite questionable. And we ask these questions. So the truth is, when you go through Torah in general, not just this, these episodes, you'll find full of controversial stories. Cain kills Hevel, the whole story of Chetet Tzadas, things that happened through their Enosh and then by the Mabel, and then things that happened afterwards. I mean, there's barely a story. I don't know if there's one peaceful, calm story that just has from beginning to end, peaceful beginning and end. You have Yosef's brother selling him into slavery and almost killing him. You have the story with Yehuda and Tamar, you have Loit and his daughters. Not mentioning Yaakov and Esau, Yitzchak and Yishmal. The list goes on and on and on. So yes, in each case you can come and give an explanation why what happened and how to explain it. But I'll speak from the perspective that I came to learn to be at peace with this. It was not just that, like you're saying, some things you don't understand. We have to really go the other way around. What is Teda and who are these individuals? So there's an expression. There's an expression that, that the Rameh and the Shalah and others bring. The Rebbe cites it in a number of places. What is Teda? Teda is the blueprint for creation. Teda is Chachmaseh V'Ritzayin Yishal Baruch God infused invested God, committed to wor- into words his will and his wisdom. That, in turn, takes on a narrative story, which is the story of the Teda, but first and foremost, that it's a divine story. In the words of the Merameh Shalah, is like this, The Teda speaks about things above. It's a, it's a spiritual book. It's a book of God's blueprint and plan. And it hints to things below. So you say, what do you mean it hints to? Isn't this Torah all narrative below? 
Adam and Chava and Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the rest of the generations. It's all a narrative form. So Dibra Teda Belosha Adam, the Teda speaks in the language of man, it is a metaphor. It actually happened. These people did live, and they went through the story exactly. We're not saying that it's a metaphor, that it didn't happen, God forbid. It all happened. But this real story is the story behind the story. First it happened on a spiritual level, and then it evolved on a physical level. So when the Jews were in Egypt, was because in Ruchnis and Sheir Shadvarim, you have a spiritual Egypt, which is Mitzvah Mugvulim. Lovan, for example, Lovan Arami, who was a Russia, Yaakov's father-in-law. So Lovan, this cites from Kabbalah, is rooted in Levana Elyon, in the supernal whiteness. Levana Elyon, supernal whiteness of Atik. And that's where Yaakov dealt with the sheep and, and all the explanations. Lovan is, so it says, everything in this world has a spiritual root. So you see even a Lovan. And the same thing with an Esav, and the same thing, Yaakov Esav Amurim Bapasha, the same thing with even the Bilam and Bolok, even those that we would call wicked people, all have a spiritual root in a spiritual story. There may reflect some type of negative energy. In Lovan's case, it actually reflects very powerful energy. Pare, we have Pare, of course, Pare was a Tan HaGadli, is considered to be the great serpent. Daviyav raised the head of the Klippa. Ultimate clip, ultimate negative energy, and yet it says in Zayar, Pari also refers to that from him bursts out all the energies. Achashvedish. Achashvedish, of course, was a king in Persia. Achashvedish was a Russia or a Tipish, however the Gemara explains it. And yet we say Achashvedish is also Meir Eich, so the sites and the Rebbe brings Achriz Vereshe Shaloi, Melech Achriz Vereshe Shaloi. How do you reconcile the two? Because when it comes down in this physical world, it takes on one shape. But in its root, it all has spiritual sources, and some of them are very high spiritual levels. So when you think of it that way, that the Tater begins on the spiritual level, the Tater precedes existence. Then all the stories that you hear about, whether it's with Yaakov and his four wives, or Shlema, or Dovid, and so on, all happen first and foremost on those spiritual levels. That's where you can understand it, because each thing has a spiritual role. If we were talking about just regular people, and they came around, they happened to be great people, great leaders, and then, here you have suddenly 3,000 wives and four wives and so on. You have all the questions, and you have to find, bend over backwards to find all kinds of explanations. And you could find. Yaakov before Martin Tater, there was no problem having more than one wife. What I discussed, polygamy. Shlema Melch is after Martin Tater, was taken frowned upon, and because of that it caused a big problem, it caused the split of the Shlema Melch's kingdom. But how does that tzaddik, Shlema Melch, we talk about him as building the base of Migdash, he represents such high spiritual levels. The only way is to explain it on the spiritual level. And then it manifests itself on a physical level, sometimes for good and sometimes has negative elements. With Yaakov, it's considered to be a very spiritual high level. With Shlema, actually, on a physical level, is not considered a positive. Same thing with, with Dovid HaMelech. And yet the Gemara says, anyone who says Dovid sinned is making a mistake. But he did things that seemingly were that way. That's why you have to, the only way to really ultimately understand it is understand it on that spiritual level. Because there the things make sense and everything has its purpose. And what would be the purpose? Yaakov needed to create the 12 tribes. They needed different attributes. And that had to come from four different mothers. As we discussed back in, the, in episode 267. Shleim HaMelech, you have to find the explanation. What his intentions were, what the spiritual intentions were, 
whether it was to create sparks that would be spread all over the world through the different women that he was with, the different wives. And on a physical level, as I said, it could evolve to being actually something that was not appropriate. So we are not afraid of saying that because the Torah itself says, for example, David HaMelech was not allowed to build the base Amigas because he spilled a lot of blood. But David is David HaMelech. But yet blood and Besamikas don't go hand in hand. Was there a spiritual reason for it? Yes. Was it preparing the ground? Yes. Can you explain it? Yes. But at the end of the day, the true explanation where these things make sense is only on the spiritual level. And once you know that, you can put us you can you can come to you can find a good explanation for any one of these stories. Because each one on the spiritual level, this is how it had to be. It wasn't just some desire that he wanted to have three thousand wives or some desire that he wanted four. It did not come down to human frailties and human flaws. There's always a deeper spiritual meaning behind it all. It's interesting, I never saw this anywhere. But the three thousand wives, we also talk about three thousand metaphors that Shleim HaMelech gave to explain every given idea. Maybe that has a connection to it. Because remember, Lamaila Ruchnius, Ishva Isha, so the Isha and Isha is like, is like, a, is like two, di- two dimensions of one reality. And at some point, Isha is the one, the woman, the, fe- the feminine energy manifests this, the, the energy, the seed that the male infuses her with. So it could be that 3,000 women were, for him, a type of 3,000 different ways of expressing the divine. I mean, as I said, once you go on the spiritual level, you can find explanations. The point I wanted to make was really addressing it, not specific this story, that story, but just a, a different attitude. At the end of the day, I don't find another way to really, to explain Tater, or else you're going to be constantly apologetic and constantly on the defensive and constantly trying to maneuver to explain things or avoid things and so on. Whereas if you understand it this way, it all begins on a spiritual level. It evolves on a physical level. On the physical level, sometimes it's not exactly the way it was meant to be. It's not, it's not always correct, appropriate. Or the explanations that are given that gave the different hetta that was allowed in different situations. That is the general um, explanation on this topic. Next question. Hi. I grew up in a Frum Chabad family and went to a regular Lubavitcher school. I'm 23. I want to get married, but I'm not religious. I'm not Frum. I feel absolutely nothing for Yiddishkeit. I don't keep Shabbos and don't keep kosher. I'm not looking to marry someone from. I feel nothing for Yiddishkeit. I wish I did. I'm miserable and unhappy. Most of my friends are married, starting families, running Chabad houses, and all that. I wish I felt anything for Yiddishkeit, let alone a passion for it. I feel nothing. I feel dead inside. Do you have any advice for me? Okay. Well, unfortunately, I've heard this more than once. But each story is another story, and I don't know the details, so it's hard for me to speak to you personally about your specific life story, but I will say this. We all have our life trajectory, our life journey, that begins when we're children, and the things we go through that cause us to grow up in different ways. Some people grow up in very beautiful homes, some grow up in very painful homes, dysfunctional homes. I'm not sure what kind of home you grew up in, but I will say this. The fact that you feel miserable, the fact that you feel unhappy, to me is a cry of your soul, and you're writing it to me, it's a cry of your soul looking for something. This isn't about trying to convince you to be frum and eat kosher and be kosher and keep Shabbos and so on. That to me are the symptoms. The key is to find someone you can speak to and really open up spiritually 
soulfully. Because at the end of the day, the mitzvahs and the Torah mitzvahs and the Yiddishkeit we grow up with are the tools, are the methods, are the, the ways that God, the instruments God gave us to live the best possible life. But frankly, many of us are taught it in a very negative way, in a very dogmatic way, and sometimes even a very abusive way. So it makes, so, so it makes total sense that some people reject it because something presented to you, even if it's a beautiful Shabbos, but it's presented to you in an abusive way, you, want, you don't want the abuse, so you throw out the baby with the bathwater. So I would say the first thing, and most of all, is to find someone that you can talk to, heart to heart, soul to soul. Not talking about whether, what to embrace, not to embrace, because what you're describing is you want to have a life. You want to have a happy life. However form it takes. So without any agendas, without trying to preach to you, or trying to convert you, or trying to in any way influence you, I think you just need someone you can trust and open up to, and just talk about your life, and see what you can do to start experiencing something healthy. And yes, a healthy relationship. I have no doubt when you create, bring health into your life, Torah and mitzvahs will be easier to embrace because if they're coming from a healthy place, you suddenly realize that Torah and mitzvahs that may have been presented in an unhealthy, dysfunctional way actually has a lot of beauty to it. And that's the challenge. So I look at this as a personal, a human issue. Find someone you can speak to human to human. Not someone who's going to try to convert you, someone's going to try to influence you or try to, to be mashpia on you. Someone you can just speak to openly, talk about your life, talk about your things that are working for you, things that are not working for you, and try to start creating a regimen of a healthier life where you can feel happy day by day, and the rest will follow from there. So that's what my advice is for you, is to find someone like that. That, to me, is the key to the entire thing, and everything else will follow from there. Okay, if you want to follow up, so please write to us. But remember, it's all anonymous, so if you want more, if you want us to be able to contact you and respond to you, please give us your, some contact information. And I'd be happy to speak to you. It can be confidential, or you don't have to tell me your name. And perhaps pursue this a bit further. Okay, next question. AA and the 12 steps. Is it legitimate according to Torah and Hasidus? Rabbi Jacobson Schlitter, I hope this finds you well. I've heard that one of the rabbis recently wrote an article against addicts going to 12-step meetings. Here's the link. I personally know addicts that have read his article and have questioned their going to meetings. From what I know about addicts, not going to meetings can often lead to relapse and serious pekuach nefesh issues. That's like death, life, and death issues. The rabbi references several articles. What is your opinion? Thank you. Another person writes, I am an avid follower and going to 12-step programs, which has saved my life and my supervisor and my friends to really stay away from things that I was addicted to. I've heard some questioning whether this is something for a Jewish person, and I'd like to know what your thoughts on this are. Because if I was told not to do that, it actually would have a deep impact on my life, and not in a positive way. Okay, so firstly, let me refer you to episodes 105 through 107, where I spoke about this more at length. There it was about whether it's compatible 12 steps with the Torah. Now, as always, I am not here to speak as a rov, a pesik, to rule on this matter. If you have a rabbi, a rav that you trust, and the rav has questioned it, so you can ask the rav respectfully 
what should you do since it's not suggesting going to the 12-step and what are the alternatives? And I believe in these articles there are alternatives. I'm not here to rule on the matter, but I will say there are Rabbonim that are big advocates of the 12 steps because they've seen it work. Rabbi Tversky, famous Rabbi Motchai Tversky, is, was, can be consulted on this matter, and he uh, talks about it a lot. There are even those that have, found, have written books and shown how the 12 steps are associated with Yiddishkeit. Yeah, now, it's true, the 12 steps themselves were found and not necessarily by Jewish and not from Jewish sources. It could even be from dubious sources. The question is, is there a healthy form of the 12 steps that has nothing to do with anything that is not, that is antithetical to Torah? Like the Rebbe spoke about meditation, creating a meditation, trans- a TM, that is a kosher form of it. Not lechat chile, we're not talking about someone who's a healthy person, we're talking about someone who is in need of this. And yes, I do myself know many, many people who the AA and 12 steps have helped and continue to help, and they'll swear by it, including Shem Ritera Mitzvahs, who, who um, have asked Rabbanim and so on. Since I'm not ruling on the matter, I don't want to rule on the factor. So I would say the following. 12 steps and they have proven methods that have worked. They do not need to have things that are unkosher or things that are not Jewish or things that are Christianized or things that come from other places. There are elements in it that are very, very consistent with the idea of accountability, the idea of a higher power of God, so on. So whether you call it 12 steps or AA is not really relevant. The question is the method works. And since it works by, with, with the supervision and guidance of a rov and a mashpia and professionals, I would go case by case and ask your the people you trust, your rabbi and your rov and your mashpia and your, and your therapist, what is the best way to deal with different addictions you're dealing with. So I look at it like case by case. Instead of some blanket statement, yes, go to 12 steps, not go to 12 steps, look at it case by case, ask people you trust, ask a Torah person, you can ask more than one Torah person, and get a good, a well-sanctioned approach to life. Like anything, we always want to do it according to Teda, according to Chassidus, and I see no reason. There are many today people who are trained, both in Halacha and Chassidus and Nashkofa, and have a good psychology, who have a good understanding of what works and what doesn't work, what's kosher, what's not kosher, and so on and so forth. That's my response to this, in addition to what I spoke about in those episodes. Okay, next question. Sad topic, suicide. Is bad or not? Why is it so bad to commit suicide? I spoke about this in episode 13. Now, I just want to point out, when I say I spoke about these things, it does not mean that the question is less valid. It's just that since we have a large body of material in my life that is supplied, cross-referencing is a way of not having to be redundant. You can always refer to it. It's all accessible. So I spoke about it more in detail there with a very interesting letter from the Rebbe. The brief answer, why it's forbidden, is because the same reason that we, that the Meraglim sinned when they came to the conclusion we cannot go into Israel because it's a land that consumes its inhabitants. God gave us life and gave us the strength to deal with life. When we throw in the towel and say, I have to end my life, God forbid, you're basically challenging God himself who gave you life as a blessing, gave you the strength to deal with every given challenge. Now, I'm not here to judge someone who has suicidal thoughts or who goes through that. Oh, God, God bless them and should have the power to deal with their challenges. I'm not, I can't put myself in their shoes. Someone comes to such desperate place. But if you're asking me the theological and the hashkof and the, and the philosophical and the base, Torah-based 
halachic basis is because we are not here to make such a decision. We were given life, figure out how to live, not whether to live. That's a gift from God, and whether we see it as a gift or not, that is what we have to do, is look for that gift and help and find people that can help us get through the difficult times. <clears throat> now this is not a statement of judgment, this is not a statement of criticism, it's just ask the question, so I'm answering the question. Just like we say, why are you not allowed to mutilate yourself? You're not hurting anyone else, you're mutilating your own body. Because it's in the chos of Shalak Kodesh Baruch Hu, the Alter Rebbe brings it, the Rambam brings it, the Radbaz explains. Because the human body is not yours. It's a gift given by God, and someone gave you a gift. Protect it, preserve it. You don't go and alter it. You don't tattoo it, you don't scar it, you don't wound it, and you definitely don't mutilate it. So take that in a broader sense. Life itself is that way. It's not our life to play around with. So you're tampering with the God's given God, only God gives life, and that's why it's such something that we have to stay. Now, stay away from because of that reason. Now, if someone is in a point where they have such suicidal thoughts, I don't think we have to yell at them and say, who are you to go against God? You have to find the kind words, compassionate words, loving words, to show somebody the value that they have, show them their value, show them how important they are to, to you and to others, and show them that love that will give them the will to want to go on. So let's separate the theological and the philosophical from the practical, compassionate approach. Compassionate approach is showing them you were given a life, you have beautiful things to contribute. Why would you want to deprive others from the gifts that you have to give and from your calling to what Hashem, God, wants of you? So that's already an approach which I spoke about more in those previous episodes that I referred to. So I wanted to emphasize that it has to be presented in a sensitive way. But since the question was the, the theological, what's, what is so bad, that's the answer. Because it's not our life to play with. This is God's life, and we have to protect it, and we have to preserve it. Okay. Now, remember we've been speaking about vaccinations. So I covered, I believe, everything I was able to find from the Rebbe, answers and letters, and different approaches. But there's still questions that came in that I didn't answer, and some more questions, and more questions keep coming in. I'm going to read a selection of them, not all of them, because some of them are, are definitely, you know, like agenda-based, crazy, ranting and raving about, no, that our vaccination is killing everybody. And as I said, the basic summation, what I said is we have a tater for these things, like for everything. And the tater says to speak to doctors. So between rabbis and tater people and and doctors, and you can go to more than one, there's an approach to take, and that's what the Rebbe is basing it on. So we shouldn't take medicine in our own hands one way or the other. Everything has to be done with moderation, with consideration, and we do it a tater way. It's not about each of us coming and becoming a crusader for or against vaccination. That's not the point. It's what does God want? Like I just said about life and about mutilation. What does God want us to do? Not what you want, what I want. And there's statistics Medicine, even regular medicine, forget about vaccinations. People go into surgery. Yes, unfortunately, we know surgery sometimes doesn't work. Sometimes there are complications. So someone's going to come out and say, no more surgery. We're not going to do any medical in interventions because we have some statistics that a few people have died. That's part of life. You have to look at the whole picture. And we have a tater for this. And the tater, Bavarin did all, anticipated and told us how to go address it with with doctors. So vaccination is part of that picture, and the Rebbe makes that clear. Al Tifrish Minat Sibur. 
It's part of halacha. We're talking about vaccinations that are proven and so on. So I'm just summing up what I said, but I'll read a few questions. Let me see how, more, how many more there are there. Yeah, okay. I don't know if I can read them all, but I'll read at least a few, maybe reserve more for next time. So this is in addition to what we've read already. From the fact someone writes that the Rebbe encouraged people to have their children vaccinated against polio, is it correct to infer that the Rebbe would be pro all vaccines? Rabbi Jacob's Mashiach. There are now some, something like 16 different vaccines for children in the USA, of which a total of about 70 doses are recommended to be given to each child. There are many potential harmful ingredients in vaccines, albeit in minute amounts, but the effects can be accumulative, so that when multiplied by 70 or so, can well cause damage to more sensitive children. The National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program has paid out over $4 billion to families of such children even though they reject the majority of claims and it, stood that, and it stood that most cases are never reported and the families don't even try to make claims. The money paid out comes from attacks on all vaccinations sold. Evidently, the CDC knows of the dangers of vaccination, but they feel that it's worth sacrificing a few children for the sake of the many. Most children seem to be fine with vaccinations, but it is a fact that children today are not as healthy as they were in the USA. 50% of children suffer from chronic disease, which is higher than other developed countries which give less vaccinations. There are probably other factors involved, but it seems that vaccination is not so innocent as we would like to think. Concerning the fact that vaccinations have eliminated terrible diseases, it has been shown that a basic understanding of hygiene together with the clean drinking water and modern sanitation has already greatly reduced disease incidents before the introduction of the vaccinations. Nowadays, vaccination is a huge money-making business, and parents are being advised to vaccinate Against, for example, chickenpox, not on the grounds that it could be dangerous, but that the parents would have to miss days from work should their child catch it. The Rebbe's letters, which have recently been publicized, are about the polio vaccination. Perhaps there are others about other vaccinations of those days, but we now have so many more. It is, is it correct to endanger even a small percentage of children in order to possibly help the majority? And is it correct to say that this is what the Rebbe wants? I've tried to keep this short, and I'm including some links in the PS if you need further information. Thanks in advance for addressing this question, and thanks for your amazing ongoing broadcasts. And then a few, a few links. Look, we know these arguments, and the Rebbe's approach to polio can be applied to other vaccines as well, absolutely. He wasn't just talking about one vaccine. I mentioned other letters where he generally refers to vaccinations in general. And it could be applied. But it's case by case. If a child is particularly sensitive or allergic, obviously you have to address that. But to come away with a conclusion that we should eliminate all vaccinations when so many doctors are recommending it and has prevented many, many diseases and maybe even eradicated some, I would not have the, 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 the goal to be able to say that. If you're, you're writing as a doctor, you're writing as a rabbi, or you're writing you're doing layman's research. So take this research to a doctor to several doctors. Be objective. Don't just look for those that will agree with you. Take it to Rabbonim and deal with it. That's how I would approach it. And take the Rebbe's letters into account of what he says in general about vaccination. So it's not about some type of mitzvah vaccination. It's like a new mitzvah of our generation. But it's also not an Aveda. And I think everything in moderation and balance. Since there's some more questions, you know what? I'll, sa I'll, I'll save them because of time limitations. Let me do a follow-up about parental alienation. 
This was back in episode two episodes back, episode 269. Okay. So first of all, there was a beautiful comment, just a thank you, so let me read a thank you from last week's episode. Why not? Thank you for addressing unusual topics, like last week's women's wrestling question. Your answer was excellent. Keep up the great work, Rab Simon. No need to read this on the show, but just wanted to leave a, br- a brief message of support. Baruch HaVatzlach. Well, I'm reading it for myself, for others. Why not? Now, as far as parental alienation, so we got two responses. Let me deal with that. One, Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for addressing the topic of parental alienation in segment number 269. I'm an alienated father of four daughters over the past four and a half years. In that time, I've been robbed of several milestones in my daughter's lives, and there's no restitution for those losses. I appreciate your concepts of bitl objectivity and neutrality. I believe that those would be tremendously helpful to families in high-conflict divorce. I think that the better question is, how does one convince an instigator to have that bitl, and what should be done to an instigator that refuses to be mavatl? Are there cases that can, be de- that, that can demand for a leader to take a side in a high-conflict divorce? And are there lines, for example, alienation that neither parent should ever cross. What might be reasonable actions to take to pressure and invest instigator to resolution of a high-conflict divorce? Well, I believe I addressed this, and being that there is usually two sides to every story, you know, you're suggesting, you're calling someone an instigator, um, I would not come to any conclusions unless I heard every, all the whole entire picture. So if you can get two people in the room, with a third party, a neutral party, that is a tater person, that's an intelligent person, that both of you trust, that would be step number one. Because then you see, you, you see both sides of the story. Now, even if you're completely right that the other person is a completely evil person and the instigator and you're doing everything right, so a wise person will also look at that and see what can be done when we're dealing with a situation like you're saying. I believe I addressed this, but I just want to repeat it since this was written. There was another follow-up on this, but I will leave that again for a later episode. Okay. So let us now do um, Chassidus question. Chassidus question for this week. Chassidus question is Sholosh Klippas Hatmeis. There are a few ways of being Mavara Sholosh Klippas Hatmeis. Sholosh Klippas, of course, is the, as the Altareb explains in Tanya chapter 7, that Sholosh Klippas Hatmeis is a sec of six and seven is a it is clipus nega which is more neutral neutral things that can be used for holiness or can be used for the negative shows clips that may are off limits also is the word also means bound by the negative energies so it's off limits so he says there are three ways of refining so, so by a yid holding back from them refrain correct shove valtasa or that's avoiding it that a way of refining it, because avoiding it, which means you avoid it, and that way this, the, that, that itself is already elevating them. Number two, by doing tshuva for them, when someone, on God forbid, fell and did, did, did transgress, by doing tshuva, like at the end of chapter seven, it, it can transform the negative into a positive. And three, by using them in a state of pekoach nefesh. Correct. Altarev explains in the Gerasakadis by using them when a person, let's say, is, God forbid, must eat on Yom Kippur, even if it's not kosher, so it becomes nasa heter or heter gomur even, 
for that moment, for that person, because it actually helped them. So in some way you've elevated it, even though it's only in that situation, that period of time and so on. Not, it's not a permanent type of um, uh, heter. The question is, if by inspiring a non to fulfill the Sheva Mitzvah, can we be mevadah shalosh klipas atmeis that he is permitted with? So if you affect a non-Jew who is allowed to eat certain foods that a Jew is shalosh klipas atmeis for a Jew, is, is, are you in some way elevating it? Is that another way? For example, if a non-Jew is influenced to fulfill the seven laws and eats bacon and uses that nourishment and energy to behave, to serve God according to the Sheva Mitzvahs, is the holy sparks of the, of the pig or any type of shalosh klipas atmeis that the, now the non-Jew benefits from become uplifted? My answer, well, obviously, my, my initial reaction would be yes. Because for that person, it's not asr. Whatever the reason, it's not us. Just like, for example, a horse is not, not kosher to eat, but you ride a lot of ride on a horse. So Shoshlip Satmez doesn't always mean you can't use it in any way. You can have anah from it, even though you're not allowed to eat from it. Avedazor, you're not allowed to have not, not eat and not tano and so on. So you can say, since for him it's allowed, and then he's using the energy, he's eating something that doesn't say anywhere, Shem you're not allowed to eat certain foods for a non-Jew, non-kosher foods. We're not talking about Ever Menachai. That is explicit, uh, one of the seven laws that you're not allowed to do. So why not say that if he's using it for good things, he's elevating it. Is it the same way of elevating for a Jew? May That may not be the case, but why not elevate it? You can go even further. The Alter Rebbe says in the end of chapter 1 that we're going to come from Shalosh Kippus HaTmeis. And he explains that, Abhil explains, that's not Chassidu Meseilam. So when a person becomes a chasidu meseilam, you can say the shalosh klipas atmeis that it was originated has now been transformed to klipas nega, and he's elevated that that concept of doing things only legarmaya for himself. Chesed lumim chatos has now been elevated to do something for the world for others, which is essentially the kindness chesed and yeshur of the seven Noahide laws. That's how I would answer that. That's, yes, that is a way of elevating it as well, even though I've not seen it explicitly, but it seems to me they're correct to say that, especially being that the, that the non-Jew is created in a divine image, so he has that capacity in the areas that his work is in elevating and refining the world. Okay. Let us now go to three essays. We, every week we do three new essays of this last year's contest, and this is an order of their marks. So we're now in the top 40, basically. So three essays. The first one is The Benefits of Uncertainty. Dovber Klein, 870. Manchester, Manchester, England. Works at the Y. Waldman Principal of Chinuch Na'arim School. I think this age is quite rare. Most of the age is usually much, much younger. But um, nice to hear. So The Benefits of Uncertainty. He writes, this essay will examine the different types of counsel offered to people grappling with anxiety provoked by an uncertain future. It will first explore and evaluate the approach of modern psychotherapy, next the traditional Jewish viewpoint, and finally the Chabad Hasidic angle showing how they can be all incorporated into one unified picture. It will investigate the Hasidic concept of think good and it will be good and its novel contribution to Jewish thought. And goes on to do just that, the modern approach, the Jewish view, and then the Chabad Hasidic angle. Very well done, very well organized and structured. 
Thank you. Next essay. How does one break out of its all-or-nothing attitude? Gishi Weinfeld, age 33, Ontario, Canada. Okay. Breakfast with little kids can go sometimes like this. I don't see the cornflakes. Sorry, it looks like we ran out of it. No cornflakes? Well, then how will I eat breakfast? You can have oatmeal or Cheerios. No, I can only have cornflakes. I can't eat anything else. I guess I will starve this morning. Though this sounds like typically young kid talk, adults can also suffer from its all-or-nothing attitude as it plays out in various forms in our lives. And goes on to explain how that plays itself out, how Chassidus provides an answer not to have this all-or-nothing attitude which many of us get caught up in. It's a short and sweet essay, but nice, very creative, very interesting, and of course very relevant. And finally, the third essay this week, A More Perfect Union, Hannah Peterson, age 25, Givat Shmuel Israel. Her job is the click company designer. The preamble of the Constitution of the United States of America sets out the vision, the vision for a fledgling country, a country founded on the ideals of justice, peace, liberty, and most of all, a more perfect union. But what does that mean? For a country founded on such a strong belief in unity, it seems that the U.S. has drifted further and further from more perfect with every passing year. What once, what once united us now divides us. And the strains of conflict that poison our national discourse seem to seep over ever deeper into the bedrock of our communities, our families, our homes. So what are we to do about it? For the past three years, I have been studying psychology, sociology, and criminology at Bar-Ilan University. In the course of my studies, I have found that though their, approach differ, their approaches differ, each of these schools of thought occupy themselves with the same thing, understanding conflict. In this essay, I'm going to look at it through the lens of Chassidus and will endeavor to shine light on the Torah's deeper paradigm of conflict resolution. It will cover how we can act, attain that goal of a more perfect union in our own lives. And goes on to speak conflict and organizational approach. The Torah approach, what happens, what happens when we avoid conflict, the Tower of Babel. Korach's Rebellion, so about case studies, Rabbi Kiva's students, their conflict without empathy. And then finally, Nothing But God, a deeper look at conflict. Well, again, very comprehensive essay, good topic, well-rounded, and thank you for that. All these essays are posted as we speak at chassidahsupply.com, and you can also receive them when you subscribe to our weekly emails. Email, we send out all the essays as they're posted. In general, when you subscribe to My Life Chassidus Applied on YouTube, you get notifications of every program, including new things that are posted outside even of the series of My Life, Fabrengans and different discussions and different talks and lectures. So with that, we conclude episode 271 of My Life Chassidus Applied in this period in time, the nine days, where the Rebbe says we should be making siyumim each night, each day, so Yumim add in Simcha, in a halachadika way, that we add joy in these days, and all thing, everything possible to add joy and unity and Avas Yisrael to counteract the negative forces that will ultimately have Yehovchi Yom Amel, L'sosno, Simcha, L'moedim, Tevim, that even before Tisha B'Av, the Geula, Amitiz, Vashlema. We're here every Sunday, and we'll be here next Sunday as well, at the conclusion of Tisha B'Av, Nitche, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., my life is applied.
Thank you so much.